so good. So good. Hallelujah. Well, you know, um, last week we, we had a very different communion service, right? How many of you were here? A bunch of you were here last week. Man, was that, did you get enough bread? <laughs> and soup. Oh, well, we had, had a, we had our fifth Sunday. But, but I tell you what, um, I'm excited to hear all the testimonies of how many people that really blessed. I had people that were very mature Christians who said to me, I never realized how much tradition I had been stuck in with communion. I took me that opportunity just to realize how much tradition, uh, what a tradition I had made it. And that's the thing with these ordinances. There's the two ordinances, the one of water baptism and this, and this ordinance that Jesus gave us. And man, I, I'm, I'm so profoundly touched because it's getting deeper and, and it means so much more to me. This is not a ritual. This is not, I know parts of the church world call it sacraments. We call it ordinances or whatever. But, but if these aren't, these aren't ritualistic obedience things, these are opportunities to use an act of faith to identify and what you do with water baptism, and that's only one-time occurrence. And if you've never been water baptized as a believer, as an adult, I text out, text in church number, get your name on the baptism list because it is a powerful Testament. It's a powerful ordinance that Jesus designed for us to identify, listen to the word identify carefully, to identify with his death, with the identify of the death of the old man and being raised in newness of life. It's the same thing with this, this other ordinance or communion or breaking of bread or the Lord's table. It's to identify with the body of Christ and how the body of Christ was crushed for our healing. By his wounds, we are healed. By his wounds, we are healed. And not only do we identify with the body of Christ broken for us, we also identify with this body of Christ. And you know, remember, I said it very carefully. I'm not going to preach this again, but I mean, I tell you what, it's powerful. For this reason, he says, many of you are weak and sickly, and some of you have even fallen asleep. We in the church have so slipped into traditions that we've, we've nullified the Word of God. In fact, I'm going to jump into this already, um, and I'll get to my title. I am starting my message, but I'll get to your the title in a bit here. But he said this, we adopt traditions, and listen to this. I'm going to read it in a couple translations here, but in ESV version, English Standard, it says, thus making void the Word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. Man, that's powerful. We so easily slip into traditions. And, and, and people, brothers and sisters, we're living in an age where we can't. We, we need the power of God to live a victorious Christian life. You and I need to live a victorious Christian life. We don't need more churchianity. We, t I, I, we don't need churchianity, people. We really don't. What we need, we don't need traditions. We don't need to follow just these, these men's ordinance, these, these, these things, these rituals that we put into practice. But he says that your traditions can make void the Word of God. In the NIV, it says you nullify the Word of God by your traditions. Young's literal translation said, it says it this way. It says, setting aside the Word of God for your traditions that you've been delivered um, that ye delivered. And then Wiest, which is not a common translation, but some of you know it, you are rendering void the authority of the Word of God. Isn't that powerful? 
the incorruptible seed of God's Word, which is designed to be buried in your heart if you monitor that, and you've heard me preach a hundred messages on it maybe, but, but it's designed to, you have to open up your heart, you have to allow the seed of God's Word place in your heart, you need to know how to nurture that seed, allow it to grow in it so it will bear fruit in your life, and all of those messages, but that incorruptible seed can be nullified, made void, empty, set aside by tradition. And yet, for a lot of the church world, that's all that Christianity has been reduced to. It's just been reduced to something that we do on a Sunday or some kind of ritual. We, if, you are, if you are willing, if you are willing to have your life radically changed and radically, if you are willing to embark on a victorious Christian life, if you are willing to experience the Jesus of the New Testament, do you know that we are in the living book of Acts right now? I've certainly lived there. I have lived in the book of Acts. To me, you, you've, some of you know my history. I don't often talk about my history, but we have been on the mission field. We have seen countless miracles. That I, I mean, we have seen more blind eyes healed and cripples walking. I'm telling you, it is the shock to your human nature when you see something that happened. Your brain, your human nature will not agree with it when you see it happen because it's just, it's just so ordinary. You don't believe when you see a miracle. I mean, one day on the crusade field, I remember I saw a little boy, and, they got, and the mom brought him up on the crusade stage, and this little boy, and they said, oh, and this little boy was just running up and down this, this stage, and, and then the interpreter, we, we were getting an interpreter to translate, so this little boy couldn't walk? No, 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 never, when, since, when he couldn't walk? No, since he was born. And I was the camera guy. I was the media guy at the time, so I took, I took hours and hours of footage and pictures and, but, but I tell you what, I zoomed on this little kid's, he was, I don't know how old he was, seven, eight, ten, I don't remember. He had calluses on his knees. He had calluses for where he had, his whole life had been, but crawled on his knees. There was an old gentleman, I mean, he was old, he was 80. He had a, a leather, a piece of leather with string wrapped around his butt. And he used to drag himself on his butt and he had gloves on his hands. And I watched him stand up. I watched him stand up on the speaker tower, stand up. And, you know, Ed was teaching and Ed was saying, just, you know, do something you couldn't do. And there he starts walking. He starts walking. He never walked in his life before. But you know what your brain says? <laughs> it's a trick. This is not real. This is just something. Your brain will shoot it down because it doesn't fit into all your theories and all your science and everything you've been told. You Nah, this is a trick. I, I experienced that. I, I saw that with my own heart, my own, my own eyes. I wanted to doubt my eyes. I've, I've often said, people have said, oh, well, if I just saw those, I would believe. I'm like, nope, you won't. I understand why the Pharisees couldn't believe. I could understand why people walked away from Jesus, even after they saw those ma massive miracles. Because you still have to choose whether you will believe his word or not. But you and I, we're living in an age where this, this world is getting darker and darker and our light needs to shine. And it will shine brighter and brighter in the darkness. 
But we've got to start, stop living for our selfish little lives and get busy with the things of God. And listen what I'm saying. I'm saying that in the post, nicest possible way. Jesus loves you, but he has a purpose for your life. And when you get purpose-driven for your life, you see in the bottom one there, when I say under reaching, establishing, connecting, that connecting part is connecting to his cause. And T and I were touching on this this morning. When you live for a cause, when you are breathing the cause of Christ, then it doesn't matter what salary you're going to get paid. It doesn't matter where you're going to sleep tonight. You wake up with passion in your life because you're willing to do something. As I've said, the difference between a vision and everybody's got a dream and a goal and a vision. I'm saying the difference between a cause and a vision, a cause is something you're willing to die for. If you, are, if you get so passionate on fire for Jesus' cause, and then Jesus said it that way, seek you first the kingdom of God and, and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. You stop looking for the stuff. You stop looking for the cherries. You stop living for the cherries and you start living for a cause. The cause of Christ, the kingdom cause. And it's passionate, people. Your heart beats faster. You get excited. There, there is something that you're willing to do. Do you know that you've, you've probably heard all those martyr stories back in the day, right? Those martyrs that they were in the arenas and they were taking Christians and, and all it was doing was multiplying. And it's been, per, it's been proven that when there is persecution, Christianity flourishes. Why? Because that's, that's what happens. These, they were putting them on crosses in, and they were letting them be torn to, to shreds by wild, wild animals in the Roman circuses or they were putting tar on them and burning them alive. And all of them were singing praises, worship songs to God while they were burning. Now, that's tough to swallow for an American mindset, right? That's tough to think that. But what I want to point out is that when we are so driven by cause that nothing else will satisfy, that is not, oh, um, I'm not sure if I can make church on Sunday. It's going to be a whole hour long. I've got stuff to do. I've got the beach to go to, and if I have time, whatever it is, you, you understand what I'm saying? It, this is not condemnation. In fact, my message is going to be very strong about how we do not live in condemnation, and the power of God's non-confrontation for us is huge. So, so buckle up, because you're going to hear about how much God passionately loves you, and no matter how much, pa how, and, and how, and how, the passion that you receive, the, the love that you receive, the non-condemnation that he loves you with is motivating. There is no thing, not one single thing in your life or in your history that you have fought and where you failed or where you've fallen. It doesn't matter what it is that God will condemn you for. Not one and when you learn just how much you've been set free, how much He loves you in spite of your faults and in spite of your failures, what that does to you is it cranks your tractor. As I heard some southern guy say once. <laughs> I love it. It cranks your tractor. You know, Andrew Womack has this saying, and, and I love it. He says, most Christians don't let the Bible get in the way of what they believe. Ouch. The Bible, I, I've got to, I, yeah, I don't want to go there too deeply, but I've got, because the Bible contains the logos of God, the very logic of God. The Bible, the Bible expounds it. The Bible itself, the paper, the ink, that's not a holy book. 
It's who it reveals in the pages, from Genesis to Revelation, how the covenants function. And so if you hook up with us, I promise you we'll endeavor to give you a balanced thing of, of, of expo, you know, we'll talk of and teach the Bible, and we have you know, Bible school that you can go to here through, um, through Karis that Terry and Mel and, and a number of you are, are doing it, and it's powerful. But to get established in the truth of God's Word is, is radical. It's a radical necessity for us to start uh, accessing truth and, and, and the way things truly are, to relieve us from, from these traditions. But you, has, as you've heard me say again so many times before, it's up to us to have a teachable heart. It's up to us to adopt and say, I will let the truth of God's Word change me. Because you and I, each one of us, are continually, every day and day, we're going to be faced with a choice. I'm either going to believe what I've always believed because Darwin says so, or whoever says so, my mama said this, my grandma said this, my preacher said this. Or you're going you're to be faced with a choice to see it in the Word of God in context, and I've taught you about that. That's a whole message in itself, or a number of them, how to rightly divide the Word of God. But when you see God is 100% consistent, He is not confused. There, the, the, he, he is logical and straightforward and reliable and faithful and true. Amen? I love what this, um, the, this uh, a, um, confession that hmm, one of my favorite preachers of time, Joel, Joel Osteen's dad, John Osteen, if any of you have listened, you can listen to his messages on, on YouTube. But John Osteen was a powerful preacher. I love John Osteen. And if you know John Osteen, he would always have a confession that he would always lead people in. And it would be this. This is my Bible. And he would have everybody hold up their Bible. Remember? This is my Bible. It is who I, it says I am. I have what it says I have. I can do what it says I can do. And then he says this, today I will be taught the word of God. I boldly confess. My mind is alert. My heart is receptive. I am about to receive the incorruptible, indestructible, ever-living seed of the word of God. I will never be the same. Never, never, never. I will never be the same in Jesus' name. Amen. What a great confession, because you've got to tell yourself every time you hear the Word of God, am I listening for the seed of the Word of God? Because you should be. If, or it doesn't matter what you're listening. If you're listening to me, or you're listening to a preacher on TV, or you, you're picking up some book from some author, whatever it is, you have got to be, you've got to make a decision who you will believe. Who will you believe? John 8, very simply, John 8 says that it, that it doesn't just say the truth will set you free. It says when you know the truth, the truth will set you free. And to know the truth, you need to be a follower. You need to be a student of the truth. You have, you have to be, a, be, be willing to go and dig because I'm telling you, this is a journey. We're all on it. You aren't going to understand it one day after being born again. There are things that aren't, you aren't going to suddenly grasp with your understanding. It's no different to a two-year-old. You learn to walk 
You learn to do stuff. You progress. You take one step at a time. You take as many steps as you want to. But you see, the thing is, though, Christians have got this, this position outside a two-year-old. It'll look kind of weird if we were all drinking out of milk bottles, you know, at certain ages. That would be kind of weird. But, but you see, but you see we, we actually do that. Paul spoke to the Hebrew Christians, and he spoke to the Corinthians Christians, and he said, guys, you, you should be further along than this. By this time, you ought to be. But you see, we've got this ability to say, you know what, I'm just going to sit here because it's comfortable, and I'm going to suck on my little milk bottle, and because that's what all I want to know. But the problem is, one, we're not doing and growing where we're supposed to be growing, so we don't have effective and we don't have victorious lives. We wonder why we are sick. We wonder why we are struggling with things. We wonder why things aren't working. We wonder all of these things, kind of, and then we kind of just bury it and push it to the side and like, quickly turn on the TV, Netflix, whatever it is, let me get something into me so that I can just ignore that call, that call to purpose and to call to, to life, that call for something deeper, that call that says you can do it. You are bigger than these issues. You can be a victim. You can conquer these things. You are called to be more. You're called to do more. Not to earn anything from God, not to get brownie points with God, because there's a world, there's a cause, there's people dying and going to hell. And, 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 and to say, okay, Lord, I surrender to your cause. I, I want this, I want to live a victorious life. I, I yield, dare you to yield to a victorious Christian life. I de- dare you to yield to passion. To, to say, Lord, change me. I'll do whatever it takes, but, but I, I give you the reins of my heart. I, I, I give you, I'm willing to lay aside the things that I think, the, my little traditions that I build up. But you see, that's what I believe Jesus was saying when he said, right, and him and John the Baptist said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It was simply adopt the attitude of repentance. And that, as you've heard me say so many times, is a willingness to change your mind to change what you believe. You see, if we don't have that willingness to change, we're stuck. We'll st- we're just simply stuck where we are. And so what we'll do is we'll hang out with everybody else that's stuck so that we feel, bu- we feel okay. We'll criticize the people that are moving on or we'll find a reason why, no, it's okay for me to be comfortable where I'm in my stuck place. I think Andrew also uses, I don't mean to quote him a lot, but it just comes to mind. He, create, he says, if we were all in sinking sand, you wouldn't notice if we were all sinking at the same rate. But if you have a standard, if you have something that's outside of your, your, the, the, the sinking sand, and you notice, hold on a second, there's something to compare myself with here. But we love to, we, we, you, you see, we, we don't believe, let me tell you what the issue, one of the major issues is. We don't believe God is good. We believed Satan's lie that what he has for us is worse for us, is painful for us, and, and we like, I'm not going to do that. You know why? Because we believe the tradition that everything God has for us is painful. We, that is not good. And yet, one of the most unbelieved scriptures is John 10.10. The thief comes to steal, 
kill, and destroy, but I have come that you can have life and have it more abundantly. But we don't even believe that. Let me tell you what I mean. Oh, yeah, I believe that verse. Yeah, 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 I can requote it. I know it. I'm not talking about what you can say with your lips and your head. Do you believe that truth, that God is absolutely for your good, that He wants you to abundant life, which means, i.e., that everything He says to you means for you, His intention for you, every motive, everything He asks of you is to lead you into abundant life, is to lead you to life more abundant, everything. That's what it means. Everything will lead you to more abundant life. That's what it means. That means that there is nothing that he can say to you that won't be a step up, a step toward, a step to give you hope and a future, to give you more passion, to give you excitement, to make you more free, to make you give you more victory in your life. Perisos is the Greek word for abundant. It means the superabundant in quantity, superior, excessive, over and above, more than is necessary. It's super added, extraordinary, surpassing, and uncommon. That's the kind of life that God designed for you, if we dare believe Him. Or we could say, ah, yeah, that... I'm going I'm, to, no, I've never seen that, so I'll, I'll just, but you know, the reason that you even come to church is because you know that in your heart. You know that there is more. There is more for you, and there is. There's more for us, there's more for us all. You know, God is so good, and, and the foundation of this series is always, is always the love of God. It's always the love of God. We have to, if we don't believe the very fundamental truth that for God so loved the world, we, that, we, that we're, Ephesians, that's in obviously John 3, 16, or in Ephesians 3, that this is how we are supposed to be rooted and grounded in the length, breadth, height, and depth of His love. If, you, if that is not your firm persuasion, that is the absolute starting point. You have to be rooted and grounded and firmly established in the fact that God loves you. In the fact, Romans 5 says that while we were still sinners, He loved us. But you know what religion has said? When does God love you? When you live right. If you love Him, if you love Him, then He will love you. If you do this, there's always a carrot or a whip in religion. And God says, no, that's not how it works. I loved you while you were still a sinner. He is the originator of love. He is, in fact, love personified, as you've heard me say, 1 Corinthians 4. This is love. God is love. 1 Corinthians 13 isn't a list of to-dos about God's love. The love chapter is who God is. That has to be our rooted ground. So whatever we say, if we don't, if we don't get that settled in our hearts, we don't allow Him to work in our lives. Why? Because we doubt His motive. We doubt that abundant life. Well, I'm not going to do that. I, 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 I doubt it. Uh, you will hesitate because you aren't firmly persuaded in His love for you. You know, I, I've used this illustration so many times before, and I don't want to go into the, the length of it for the sake of you who know it, but, but I'm bilingual. In South Africa, we taught, and a number of you South Africans speak Afrikaans. But I, 
if you, and, and my illustration was that simple thing, driving up to a gate at a friend's house one day, and I saw a danger sign. And the danger had a picture of a, a dog on it, and it said, it said it in three languages, Zulu, Afrikaans, and English. And my brain played a trick on me, because Ngozi in Zulu is the word danger. And obviously, there's a picture of a dog, so guess what, you know, you know, takes a rocket science. Okay, danger. And then it said, the next word in, in, Afrikaans, in, um, in, uh, in English was obviously the word danger, and then in Afrikaans, it was the word gefaar. And I remember my brain did a sort of a rewiring trick. It was weird because I read and, and I had gone to an Afrikaans high school and, and so I'm very familiar with Afrikaans. And I, was, I remember reading the, the word gefaar, G-E-V-A-A-R, which in Afrikaans means danger. And, but my brain read it like I had read it in English. And so what my brain said is, okay, now there's this other word that you've got to read in Afrikaans. D-A-N-G-E-R. And so I was looking at it, I was like, D-A-N-G-E-R, Danger, Danger, Danger. Man, I know what that's supposed to say. Ngozi, Gefaar, Danger, what the heck is Danger? And I literally was like, man, I've never heard that word before. I was like, wow. And so I felt really stupid when my lightning fast brain, you know, went to... I don't know what planet and back, came back and was like, oh, hold on a second. I was listening in the wrong language. I was reading in the long, wrong language. And that's the problem why we can't understand God, because He speaks a language of love. If you don't understand that love is the language He speaks, you read it in a tone of condemnation. Your brain goes looking because you're full of tradition, and we all are to certain degrees. We're so full of traditions that we go back and we, 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 don't, we don't get it because we're reading, even when we pick up the Bible, the incorruptible seed, we've, be, we've been corrupted. Our belief system, the ditches that we're in have been corrupted because God will always and can only speak in a language of love. Why? Because... He is love. And I have to say this, not in your definition or my humanistic definition of, of love, because somehow that's been interpreted today to be nice. If you do something that's nice, then you love them. No, there's nothing about nice. Love, love is way bigger than that, and that's a whole topic we can unpack for a long time. God's love will do that. Love, as we spoke before, love will mean sacrifice. Love will willingly sacrifice. Just like when you loved your spouse, you're willing to go the extra mile. You, when you love anything, you're willing, to go, you're willing to lay something down because you love it. Love will automatically give. It's the nature of somebody in love or something. When you love it, you're willing to sacrifice for it. For God so loved that He gave. We'll always give will always give. But all these weird beliefs that we have about God and, and things like, you know, we, we've adopted these things that really God is not good. It's really the lies of the enemy. God is really not as good. And, and really that you don't really have free will because then this one, as you know, is my pet peeve. God is in control because we've never understood and never listened to him and said, what? Listen, 
either believe that God is controlling everybody. In other words, you believe that he's a megalomaniac in charge of everybody's decisions, everybody's choices, and every circumstance. Or you believe in free will that God gave the earth to man. But you can't believe both at the same time without having your wires severely crossed. And it does. We have confused belief systems because that's exactly where most of the church is today. Because we think that it's heresy to say God's not in control. But let me tell you, God, that's not saying God is not powerful. I'm not going to go into my teaching here because I literally could write a book on it, probably at least a small one. But it's like God is not controlling your life. You are. Your choices. You go faster than the speed limit if you want to. You choose if you're going to get fat or not. Well, some of us. Sorry. We have choices. And God, but you said, we say this, because we don't want to take responsibility. The devil, how about that? The, The poor devil. Is he? The poor devil. The devil's too strong. I can't handle it. The devil's chasing me. The devil's doing this. The devil made me do it. What about this one? You see, you don't believe who you are or who Christ made you. You're like, man, I just can't do that. I'm not able. I just can't. You may be able to, to, but I can't do it. You see, those are lies that speak in because we've succumbed to tradition. Who told you you're not able? Who told you? Why, why do you say you're not able? Jesus said we are well able. We are well able. That we'll get into some of that later on in the series. But we have to be able to hear God to, to understand. We, we've got to understand beyond all else that this environment that you come into, when you, become, when you get born again and receive Jesus and, and, and come into this environment, it's an environment of love. It's, a, it's an environment of compassion. It's an, it's, an, it's an environment of mercy. It's an environment of goodness where God's love is manifest. In fact, we sang it this morning, show me your glory. But you know the truth is God has shown us his glory. Moses said in Exodus 33, he, remember when he said, he said the same thing? He said, God, show me your glory. And what does God do? He says, I will show you my goodness. The glory of God isn't some shiny cloud. Ooh, here's a shiny cloud. (laughs) Big deal. Was your life changed? Because, I mean, I've literally been in church services where it was a big auditorium and, and there was kind of like a mist hanging in because it was so high. And I was like, and my poor sweet brothers and sisters, oh, look, the Shekinah glory of God. I'm like, oh, Jesus, help us. I think there's a reason Jesus said we're sheep. And it's not very complimentary sometimes. If any of you have been on a, if any of you have been on a farm and understood sheep, dang. It's like, okay, Jesus. I mean, it's nice that, thank goodness, we have a shepherd who's always wanting to take us and lead us and 
no, 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 sweetheart, no, come this way, this is where the green pastures are, here is the still waters, don't eat this, do, no, 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 you know. But, you know, the simple truth is, it is, living this life is as simple as following the shepherd. And just like those sheep would trust their shepherd, we just got to simply trust the Lord. We've got to know that this environment of His love and goodness is ours. You know, um, <laughs> uh, there, there is these, there's this area, I mean, I, I wanted to go, these, Luke 9, let me just go to Luke 9 quickly. In Luke 9, verse 51, Now it came to pass, when the time had come for him to be received, that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem and sent messages before his face. And as they went, they entered the village of the Samaritans to prepare for him. But they did not receive him because his face was set for the journey to Jerusalem. Now, you have to understand a little bit of Samaritan history over there. The Samaritans, the woman at the well was in Samaria they, you speak about there, there was a, it was a religious faction. The Samaritans believed you didn't have to worship in Jerusalem where the Ark of the Covenant was and the Holy of Holy was. They believed that there was a mountain over there. And so there was this big animosity, a religious animosity between the Samaritans and the Jews. And so when they, they now Jesus has been nice, he's got, gone through them, they, he is just heading towards Jerusalem. And so this village that he's about to pass through, because the disciples have gone off it, like, hey, let's get some things set up. Maybe you can have a meal there, whatever. Maybe spend the night, whatever it is. The town's like, you're heading towards Jerusalem? Uh-uh. You're not welcome in this town. So that is the animosity, okay? So then in verse um, uh, 54, it says, and when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them just like Elijah did? Let's burn him, Jesus. Get him. They don't want to let us go through the town. Who do they think they are? Sounds like a lot of voters today. Ooh, is that too close? Burn him, Jesus. Judge him. Let's fire. Let's call fire down. I mean, we don't like their policy. Verse 55, but he turned and rebuked them. He said, you do not know. And this is, by the way, in the New King James, it's important because it's the way other translations say it. You do not know what manner of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. You see, we see this in, in Acts 1 verse 8. Remember when it says, when, when, the, when Jesus said, listen, don't leave Jerusalem, you need the Holy Spirit, and He's going to empower you, He's going to give you this dynamically power that's going to come on you, and you're going to be, this, this power is going to make you, give you the ability to be witnesses here in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, Samaria, yes, that place up there, and to the ends of the earth. Well, guess what the disciples did? Nothing. They stayed in Jerusalem. Acts 8 comes by, and they've all been staying in Jerusalem. After Stephen's martyrdom, persecution breaks out against the church, and then some of them go. So they'd all been huddled in, in Jerusalem. They hadn't gone to Judea and Samaria. But suddenly now they go and spread out. They're going to Judea and Samaria. And we see Philip goes down to the city of Samaria. He's like, okay, well, here goes nothing. He preaches the gospel there, and boom, fire but not the fire like that. 
The fire of the Holy Ghost hits them. They come down. Signs and wonders and miracles are happening all over Samaria. And it says that there was joy in the city. Wow. You see, that's how God deals with people. We're ready to try and burn them like Elijah did. And we use that. No, but it's in the Bible. Look, look, look. It's in the Bible. That's what, that's what Elijah did. And we justify with one context that's right outside the character of God. Because we don't even know how to read the Bible. That's how, you know. And so suddenly he's like, no, 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 no. You don't understand. I never came to destroy men's lives. I've come to save men's lives. Again, John 10, 10. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. I've come that you may have life and live it for the full. That can sort out most theology right there. But you know, often God is accused of stealing. God took my child. God took my house. God took... God took, kill. Oh, God killed. God allowed my child to be God. God allowed 9-11 to happen. No, he does not steal, kill, or destroy. He comes that we may have life. He came to save men's lives. I know some of your theologies are getting rattled, but what will you do with it? Will you go and say, no, I'm going to sit in the comfort of what I've always been taught? Or will you go and study this out or stick around long enough and say, listen, I want to experience the goodness of God. Okay, let's, let's go through some, some of the goodnesses of God. Man, I love, I love the goodness of God because there's so much. I mentioned something about condemnation, and so I want to talk about this is a famous scripture that you all know. Romans 8 verse 1 says, there was therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. For, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. There is no condemnation. Let's look at that a little bit. Let's unpack this. John 8 verse 3. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst said to them, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now the law of Moses commanded us to stone such woman. Is that true? Anybody? Yes, it is actually true. Commanded us to stone such a woman. What do you say? This they said to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when, he heard, when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. And Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? No one has condemned you? Or has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. You see, again, you've heard me say this numerous times. You've got to establish yourself in a truth here. The truth is that Jesus is the exact representation of the Father. It says it in Hebrews 1 and in Colossians 1. And he said it to Philip. Philip, you know, asks him, just show us the Father and that'll be enough. And he says, Philip, don't you know that if you've seen me, you've seen the Father? Don't you know that I can't do anything on my own? I only do what I see my Father doing. I only say what I hear my Father saying. It says in Colossians 1 and Hebrews 1 that he is the exact representation of the Father. It, it, uh, the, he is in these last days. It says in times past, God revealed himself through his prophets and, and so on. But in these last days, he's revealed himself by his, by his spirit, by his, through his son, sorry. 
And he is the exact representation of God. When you see Jesus talking, walking, acting, you are seeing the very manifestation of what God's character and nature is like. So in this situation, we see the exact representation. Did this woman deserve the exact representation of God? Does this woman deserve to be stoned? Yes, by the law of Moses. But guess what? His heart is not to destroy the men's lives, but to save them. He says, neither do I condemn you. Was this woman caught in the act of adultery? Yes, she was. And we see this in the exact representation of God again and again and again. He does not treat us, he does not treat them as their sins deserved. How about this in... um, uh, in, in Luke chapter 15, you know this, the parable well, the story of the man who had two sons. And for the sake of time, I'm not going to go over it, but just the first son, the prodigal, as we know him, he goes on, he takes, he shares his inheritance and goes and squanders it. Um, and then in verse um, uh, 17, of course, now this, the, he's come to himself, he's blown all his money, all his friends have upped and gone because they were only there for the fun um, and the money and so on. And so he's now penniless and he's feeding the pigs and he comes to this he says but when he came to himself he said how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread but I perish here with hunger I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him though he's he's practicing right just see that here he is in sitting in the slop probably the pig smell is right there and he's saying He's getting ready. I'm going to go to my dad because I can at least get food. I know how he treats his servants. I'm going to say, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father. So here he starts. Father, I have sinned against heaven before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. He doesn't even get to the end of his rehearsed thing that he was going to give the law, give his father, because he's about, and his son, his father just like interrupts him mid sentence. His father said to the servants, Bring quickly the best robe, not the second best or the last best. Bring the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his hands, shoes on his feet. Bring the fattened calf, that special one that we've been holding for the next special party. Kill it, let us eat and celebrate, for this was my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Do you know, he doesn't question his son's motive. His son was coming to get a free meal or at least work for a meal. That didn't bother him. the compassion, the lack of condemnation that God has towards us as his children is amazing. He is not interested in your past. He is interested in your future. You couldn't even, if you just come to God and you say, Father, he's like, whoa, let's get party on, let's get the party on. He wants to restore and bring you. He is not looking. His love is all, his compassion, his lack of condemnation for this woman caught in the act of adultery. People, I'm, talking, I'm not saying, I don't know whose husband she was sleeping with. Exactly. Where is he? 
I've heard other people say, and it's likely that it's probably one of the Pharisees who volunteered so that they could catch him out because they tried to trick him. Thought that, but that's what religion does. You see, religion, just to prove a point and to try and trick him, doesn't, they don't mind sacrificing some sinful little woman. Religion does that all the time. I don't, kind, I don't mind sacrificing a few people on the sideline to get my agenda. Why don't we sacrifice those women that have committed um, um, abortions? Because they're evil. Or maybe the doctors. Let's sacrifice some of them because they're evil. Ouch, Shannon, you shouldn't go on there. God loves people. I'm not saying I, I support abortion, but I can tell you what, we aren't here to destroy men's lives. Listen to how God generates love. Do you know how God generates love? It's interesting. I love this passage. Luke 7 it's an interesting passage. It's, it's actually when you lay, overlay all, it's in, every, it's in all four of the Gospels, this story, it'll sound familiar to you, but it's interesting if you lay all four of the stories across each other, you learn different facts from different perspectives. And that's what I love about Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. These aren't rehearsed guys trying to get the story right. These are guys that gave their version of the same account. And, and so in Luke 7, verse 36, one of the Pharisees asked him, eat with him. He went to the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair, with the hair of her head and kissed her feet and anoint, sorry, kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now, when the Pharisees who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man, he's not, this he's thinking, right? Said to, says it within himself. If this man were a prophet, he would have known who would sort, sort of woman this is and who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii. And the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them would love more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, from whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. There's, a, there's so many beautiful truths in this. Do you think that on a scale of sin, that she was more sinful than the Pharisee? Well, if you've been in church long enough, you'll probably know, no, there is no, there is no, there's no weight to the sin. There is no, but the point is this, she loved much because she was aware of the forgiveness. She had received the lack of condemnation. She had received what Jesus had given her and had, had responded and flowed out with love towards him. If you study the other passages, you will actually know this is Mary. This is the Mary and Martha from Lazarus, the sisters of Lazarus that he raised from the dead. This is Mary. Now, you'll have to read all four of them, and that may be homework for you to overlay one of them, but you'll see that 
This is the same Mary who was sitting at Jesus' feet while Martha was working in the kitchen, that whole story. It's that Mary, not Mary Magdalene, not Mary, mother of Jesus, not Mary. There's a few Marys. Clopas, I think it is, the wife, uh, the wife of Clopas. There's a number of Marys, so you've got to. But, but here, understand that she loved much because she was aware of how much she has been forgiven. God originates love towards you. And we did it last week. We identified the whole, the whole uh, ordinance of breaking of bread is to identify with the finished work that this, not only are we forgiven, we have been made the righteousness of God. His body was broken for us. His, sin, he, his body, he, by his wounds, he has taken all of these. And, and the, understanding the new covenant in his blood, it's such a powerful truth because when I identify and that becomes my reality, if I'm aware of how much I'm forgiven, it, it generates a love response. But you see, if you're self-righteous and you think, well, I'm not as bad as Joe down the road because he's a drug dealer. Or I'm not as bad as Susie because she had an abortion. Or I'm not as bad as so-and-so because they're confused about their sexual orientation. I'm not as, I'm, you see what we can do? We're, we're so busy pointing fingers, we're relating to other people. We don't, we're not aware of how much forgiveness we've been forgiven. But when we start getting, you know, we start looking at the log in our own eyes, so to speak, and we say, wow, God, you love me that much? Thank you that you've given me, you've exchanged my faults and failures for your righteousness. What? And that's what 2 Corinthians 5.21 says. God made him who had no sin to become sin for me, that in him I become the righteousness of God. I become the very righteousness of God? The very righteousness of God? Are you kidding me? The very righteousness of God? Wow. Wow. Grace swallows up your sin and failures. God's grace, it doesn't matter. Won't you close your eyes with me as we just meditate on that a moment? Neither do I condemn you, he said. Go and sin no more. The reality is that None of us live perfect lives. Even the Apostle John said that if we say that we don't have sin, that we're not, we don't have the truth in us. But I want you to know God loves you and He doesn't condemn you. Step into the environment of His love and goodness and kindness. Hebrews 3 and 4 tells us that we can boldly approach the throne of grace. And it is a throne, not of judgment, but of grace and mercy. You see, we need grace and mercy. We need to know that we need grace and mercy. We always do. It's never been about our earning some legalistic form of righteousness by our own flesh, by our own hands and feet, by about jumping a certain height or keeping a certain amount of rules. We have to receive this gracious free gift of His righteousness. That's where it starts. God, I can't earn it, but you did. 
You died on that cross. You shed your blood for this massively incredible gift to be exchanged, the reconciliation gift. And I know because I've been there. I've condemned myself more than I care. I mean, I get, you, when, you fall, when you fail and fail and fail again, you become disappoint, disappointed, maybe disheartened. And so you're left with two choices. Either you just abandon the whole religion thing or you just make up your own story. Tell your own self your own story that you want to believe. Or you sort of keep him at arm's length. But let me tell you, he loves you. He is that father that when you are far off, he will run to you. He isn't, he isn't interested in your excuse. You don't even have to bring an excuse because he's passionately in love with you. Passionately in love with you. And as we go through this series, you've got a decision to make because this is the foundation of victorious Christian living. It is the foundation of where are we going to go? But you've got to get your heart persuaded. Make a decision right now and just say, Jesus, I receive your love. Father, thank you for your plan to love me and set me free. I receive that. That's all you need to do. I, I, I choose to receive it. I choose to believe it. And if you're not sure, like I wasn't for so long, I encourage you, listen to this a few times. Go and check out these passages. There is so many directions we can go. Go and study First John 4. So many other passages that we can talk about. But God loves you. He doesn't condemn you. Like that woman who put the, like Mary, who put the, the nard over her, his feet, washed them with the tears and hair, dried them with his, her hair. Jesus didn't care what she had been doing. He just received her offering. Woman, neither do I condemn you. He said to the woman caught in the act of adultery, go and sin no more. You see, it's the power of receiving the gift of no condemnation that is going to empower us to live a life above destruction. But it starts with receiving. Will you receive that? That's your choice and only your choice. What do you choose? What do you choose? Isn't that beautiful? Father, we so, we so appreciate this gift of eternal life. We, forget, we appreciate this gift of no condemnation. Let me say this. Many of you have held on to condemnation and it has caused a physical ailment in your body. 
things that have plagued you for a long time, it's as simple as coming to Him and receiving this truth and getting your heart established in the truth. You watch, you will walk out of that. You will walk out of that, that pain, that thing. Know that your Father loves you. See His demeanor towards you. Imagine, imagine His face towards you. I want you to see His eyes aren't filled with disdain. His eyes are not filled towards you with disappointment. Only joy to see you. Only pleasure to party with you. His excitement is to restore you, put shoes to robe on your, on your, a robe of righteousness on you and sandals on your feet. Restore your authority. That's his demeanor towards you. So Father, we receive that. We receive that in Jesus' name. If you this morning or maybe even online haven't received that or you just did, you heard that and something in you clicked, I want to encourage you to come and speak to one of our prayer ministers. And if you're online, you can just text the word prayer to our texting church number on your screen and we will contact you. Thank you, Father, for loving us. And Lord, we, we pray for those around us, Father. We pray for our country. Father, I thank you that we are instruments of your care and your love towards people around us, all people. Thank you, Father, for giving us wisdom in these elections, Father. We thank you that we can pray for our elected officials. Thank you for, for what you're doing in them, that they have laborers around them that are willing to share your great love. We know that changed hearts change lives. Pray for every one of them in government, Father, that they would know you. Change hearts will produce changed lives. Thank you, Father, for loving us. Amen and amen.